listening to the best of the Glenn Beck program. Hi, Mike. How are you? Doing great. It's so good to be back on your show. Thanks yeah, for having me on. You're welcome. So, is seriously, I know we have to pick a woman for some unknown reason. Is a sex change out of the out of the realm of possibility with you? <laughs> well, not in the next seventy two hours. No, okay. I, that that seems right. a little hasty. Okay. All right. So, Mike, I want to talk to you about the vacancy. What's going on? Um, uh, Ted said that he has concerns of anybody that is nominated because we always screw this up. Is there anybody on this short list that you feel is a real home run? Yeah, look, I, I think it's going to be Amy Coney Barrett. I, I could be wrong. I don't think I'm going to be. I think it's going to be her. And I think uh, she would be a fantastic Supreme Court justice. I think she'll be a textualist and originalist. She'll be devoted to the cause of constitutionally limited government. That's what we need. So who would you compare her to? Who do you think she's going to be more like? She, she will be in the mold of her former boss, Justice Scalia, and in the mold of uh, Justice Alito, my former boss, and in the mold of Justice Thomas. Uh, she'll be somewhere oh, in wait, that wait, universe. Wait, wait, Justice Thomas. Oh, Clarence yeah. Thomas. I was thinking yeah. Roberts. I thought you said Roberts there for a second. No, no, no. Oof, yeah, that would be God. a very different story. It's going to be uh, somewhere between uh, Roberts and yeah. uh, and Scalia. Oh, she's right okay. in the sweet spot where we would want her to be. She's Good. A, she's a Scalia, Alito, uh, Thomas type of jurist, and that's exactly what we want. Now, the last time she was confirmed in front of the Senate, they just raked her across the, the coals for her religious beliefs. She's a strong Catholic. And, uh, I mean, just really were, I thought, way out of line. Uh, they were. I, I was horrified, Glenn. As I sat through there, I was in the committee room. I served on the Judiciary Committee. with, uh, And as we were going through uh, the process of confirming her, a couple of my Democratic colleagues started asking her these questions. And I couldn't believe what I was hearing at first. One of my colleagues said, uh, you know, the dogma seems to live strong in you or, or, or words to right, that effect. Right. Another colleague asked her if she uh, would describe herself as an Orthodox Catholic. Both of those questions came off to me as though they were saying, well, uh, it's one thing if you're Catholic, but if you actually believe that stuff, uh, then you're kind of crazy. It really bothers me. As a religious minority myself, uh, I I find that very offensive. As an American, I I find it appalling. As a constitutional lawyer, I find it unacceptable. Imagine saying that to Ruth Bader Ginsburg about her religion. Exactly. I mean, that's that's outrageous. Absolutely outrageous. Um, So... Tell me about what you're expecting uh, the Democrats to do. I mean, they are talking about burning the place down if this if this passes. Tell me, is that is that rhetoric? Are they serious? What what what's what's happening, Mike? I I don't know. It's 2020. And so I I, I don't know whether to read anything um, just figuratively or, or literally, because it could easily be both. Uh, insofar as they're expressing outrage over this, that's really quite absurd. I mean, look, this is not an historical aberration for us to be confirming in this context. You know, in 2016, which they like to point out, President Obama nominated Merrick Garland, and the Senate gave its advice and consent on that nominee by rejecting him. 
this year, President Trump will nominate a, a replacement. I think it's going to be Amy Coney Barrett uh, for Justice Ginsburg. And consistent with the Constitution, we'll again give our advice and consent. If we like the nominee, we'll confirm her. If we don't, we won't. It's, it's that simple. And, you know, there have, been, uh, uh, su- there have been Supreme Court vacancies in presidential election years 29 times in the history of our republic. In 10 of those cases, the presidency was held by one party and the Senate by a different party. In nine of those 10 instances, uh, the nominees were rejected by the Senate, just like Garland was. On the other hand, there have been 19 times when a Supreme Court vacancy occurred in a presidential election year where both the presidency and the Senate were controlled by the same party. Only one of those 19 nominees, Abe Fortas, was rejected, and he was rejected on a bipartisan basis after an ethics scandal. Every other nominee, 18 out of those 19, was confirmed in an election year when the Senate and the presidency were under the control of the same party. There is nothing unusual about us doing this. There's no reason why they should threaten to burn the house down, whatever that means. Mike, uh, you know, for the last few years we've been talking about we need to make sure we're watching Russia and any foreign actors on, uh, on our elections. The, what the Democrats are doing now with the mail-in ballots um, – and how bad our systems are in every state. Uh, Soros owning the, uh, the many of the attorney generals or the um, uh, district attorneys. I, I am really, really, really concerned that no one is going to believe the results of this election, no matter which way it happens. It is uh, certainly concerning. Uh, And uh, one of the many reasons why we need to resist any effort ever to centralize all voting authority Um, uh, because of the fact that it would make it more subject to manipulation by nefarious actors either outside of our country, like like Russia, or otherwise. Um, By the way, that's exactly what a proposal advanced and passed by the Democratic House of Representatives in this Congress, H.R. 1, would have done, is centralize election authority, making it more vulnerable. Uh, our system is far more vulnerable than I would like it to be, but much better than it would be if the d- d- reforms proposed by the Democratic Party were enacted into law. In the meantime, uh, people can do their part by making sure that they vote, by looking out for irregularities whenever they see them, and, uh, and praying to Almighty God with everything in them uh, that he'll guide us through this particularly difficult election cycle and we'll make it through. Uh, Mike, are you concerned with um, uh, the the lack of record for Amy uh, Coney Barrett? Um, it, I mean, all of them are short. Hers is probably the best. But are you concerned that we don't know enough about these guys? I, I'm nearly always concerned that we don't know enough. I wish we we knew more. With Judge Barrett, we know more than we know with most. Yeah, we confirmed her about three years ago to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit. And uh, we also have her uh, career-long track record academically. We know that she's been involved in the Federalist Society. We know that she's a textualist originalist. We know that she clerked for Justice Scalia. Mm -hmm. So those are all good signs. All the indications we have from her are positive, and that's why I'm confident about this choice. Scalia is – this was his favorite – uh, assistant or what, what, what did you call it a clerk, clerk. Yeah. yeah his favorite clerk right yeah he he loved her 
and he was not overly emotional or attached to clerks. I, I have a friend, uh, my friend uh, John Fee, who is a law professor now at BYU, clerked for Justice Scalia, and I believe it was John Fee who told me that on the last day of his clerkship, Justice Scalia said something to him along the lines of, uh, you know, you guys are all fungible to me, right? <laughs> he, oh, my gosh. He, 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 he was sort of... You know, he was yeah, half joking in yeah. many, joking in many, in most respects. But his point was, uh, I I can't get emotionally attached to each law clerk. But he loved Judge Barrett, and uh, I think it speaks well of her and of of him that he felt that way. Um, just because Donald Trump loves a show, uh, and uh, he he likes these big surprises. Uh, let me talk to you about Barbara Lagoa a bit. Um, I like her story, uh, born to, to uh, Cuban immigrants, um, you know, and really seems to understand America. Uh, first Cuban-American woman selected for the court, but she was also nominated by Jeb Bush. Uh, so do we what do we know about her? OK, so here's the thing. I'm sure she's a great person. I voted to confirm her to the U.S. Court of Appeals to the 11th Circuit. Uh, from what I can tell, she is a good judge there. I would not be comfortable confirming her to the Supreme Court of the United States the same way I would be with Amy Coney Barrett for the simple reason that we don't know that much about her history of commitment to textualism and originalism, at least not you know before just a few years ago. Uh, one of the standards I employ is I, I, I like to go back 20 years. I, I like to find out uh, who someone was associating with, who they were working with uh, 20 years ago. Uh, what were they doing to uh, promote understanding of the Constitution, of textualism, of originalism? You know, 20 years ago, Amy Coney Barrett uh, was was clerking or preparing to clerk for Justice Scalia. I, I know that she was involved heavily in the Federalist Society that entire time. I don't know that about Barbara Lagoa. In fact, I haven't been able to uh, find anybody who can confirm that to me. I could be wrong in having that concern, but because I don't know, uh, I, that, that nominee would scare me I, that, uh, simply because I don't know enough mm. about her. Wow. Okay. Um, let, me, uh, let me just switch topics and then I'll let you go, Mike. On, uh, the president came out with a ban on woke capital working with the U.S. government. Um, he has tried to stop these woke, um, uh, you know, hypnotist programs that are that are going on right now in critical race theory. And we have several branches of the administration that are ignoring his his order to not do any of these critical race training uh, uh, meetings. CDC was the first. They had, uh, I think, a 12 or 13 week course. Uh, another one's got a 21 week course that is going on. They're just ignoring. Aren't we should, should people be fired? I, I talked to somebody at, at the uh, OMB yesterday and he said, well, we really can't. We can't fire people who are directly going against a presidential directive. That seems wrong to me. And first of all, I'm very grateful to to the Office of Management and Budget for putting out this memorandum. Last week, I had Russ Vogt, the head of OMB, come and speak to the uh, Senate Republicans and uh, explain the need for this memorandum. Look, these people are hating America on America's dime, and it's time to cut off their allowance. This is absolutely ridiculous. Uh, now, look, uh, have we always lived up uh, to the lofty ideals that we believe in? No. 
We're mortals. We're, we're imperfect. But more than any other society that I know anything about in recorded human history, we have the ideals. We do embrace them. And we gravitate over time toward them to shake America's foundations to their core. To suggest that we don't have those ideals is fundamentally un-American. It's not helpful. It's not what they should be doing. And in this case, it violates an executive branch directive. So, yeah, these people shouldn't be having those courses. By the way, Glenn, who does a 13-week course on anything? within yeah. the government, let alone a 21 week. Uh, I know. These people, if, if, if we're doing that much time in training on things that, uh, that have nothing to do with anyone's job in the federal government, why do they have a job to begin with? Uh, I don't know. What job is but, there that's that expendable? But if you, if you don't fire these people, um, you're going to teach everyone else. You can get away with it. They'll slap you on the wrist. They'll make you stop doing it. But they're not going to fire you. Examples need to be made that you respond to the duly elected president of the United States. You're a part of his administration. That's exactly right. The the one thing that the founders had in mind when they designed the executive branch of government is that the president of the United States would be the head of the executive branch of government. They didn't contemplate this Byzantine labyrinth, uh, this impenetrable fortress in which people once inside could never be taken out. Right. Uh, there are civil service laws need to be reformed such that the American people can have a say in who operates their government. The president needs discretion to take out people who aren't willing to execute and enforce the laws according to his directives. We need to overhaul our laws in that area. Going to Washington seems like Hotel California. You can check in, but you can never leave. Thank you so much. The best of the Glenn Beck program. Drew Holden is uh, with us. He's from The Resurgent uh, and uh, the author of The Resurgent. Welcome uh, to the uh, welcome to the program, Drew. How are you? Thank you, sir. I'm, I'm doing well, Glenn. How about yourself? Uh, you know, I, I would I would be better if we didn't have our country on fire on fire right now. Uh, and it seems a reasonable thing to be concerned. Right. And it seems to me, Drew, and you're great at pointing this out. It seems to me they are willing to do anything. They really I think they mean burn the whole thing down. Yeah, I mean, you know, Senator Schumer said the other day that all options are on the table. Right. And they've floated all of the bad ideas, be it during the nominating process and since, and I, I can't help but agree with you. So you, uh, you do what you, you do best. You took everybody's words uh, now and then. You want to give us some of the uh, most stunning? Sure, yeah. I mean, I think up from the start, President Barack Obama was saying just four short years ago that it would be irresponsible for the Republicans to not consider a nominee before one is even announced. He has since, four years later, called on congressional Democrats and Senate Democrats to do the exact same thing. Senator Schumer, uh, another one of our greatest hits, he was saying the same thing. He said, you know what? The Senate has confirmed 17 SCOTUS justices in presidential election years. The Senate should do their job, confirm a nominee back when it was a Democratic nominee, right? When Merrick Garland was going to be the one. But this was all up and down the ticket. I mean, potential, you know, the presidential nominee, Joe Biden, saying the same thing. It would be a genuine constitutional crisis to block a potential Mm. justice nominee on the court. All of those thoughts, all of that 
all of that logic has gone entirely out the window uh, in the span of four years. So I have to tell you, Drew, uh, Stu and I are one of the only two that I know of. I know there are more, but the only two that I know of that actually said, give an up or down vote. I mean, we're consistent yeah, with, Garland. Even though, with Garland, even though I don't think you need to be uh, consistent on these two because there is a difference. The Senate yeah. is it was not controlled by the Democrats, and that's usual for them not to you know honor the uh, the the nominee exactly and it's not a rubber stamp right i mean i right. think that's the thing that's kind of lost on people is that the role of the senate isn't to vet a candidate and say yep okay here they go they're fine we'll let them through it's to it's to vote up or vote down i i agree with you i was i think i was saying the same thing back yeah. when and said hey you know what fine we don't like the guy vote him down get it over with vote down whoever you want but but have the vote and do it and again, this is the old, this is, in a lot of ways, it's the old Harry Reid filibuster play. It's, you think it's going to work for you in the short term, it makes a lot of sense. But in the long term, you look like you got a lot of egg on your face. So I find it interesting how the change in the left here in, on tone, Hillary Clinton, this is the tweet from ABC News at the time, calls for a full and fair hearing for Merrick Garland. In announcing Judge Merrick Garland as his nominee, President Obama has met his responsibility. Now it's up to the members of the Senate to meet their own, end quote. It seems respectable. Listen to this. Hillary Clinton says Senate Democrats will have to use every single possible maneuver to prevent Senator McConnell from enacting the greatest uh, travesty and monumental hypocrisy in attempting to fill Ruth Bader Ginsburg's Supreme Court uh, seat. I mean, the words that the left is using now, they are just so extreme. They, they are. And, you know, I think it, they would be extreme even if the Merrick Garland situation hadn't happened. Right. I think, to, to his credit, Senator Schumer pointed out 17 times we filled a, a, a Supreme Court seat in an election year. So the idea in general of calling this a monumental hypocrisy, the greatest travesty, is just it's baldly ridiculous. But when they were saying the exact opposite just four years ago, it really does. I mean, for anyone sitting at home who may still kind of think that there are people on the left side of the aisle who are going in good faith to try and do things that are in the best interest of the American people rather than politicians who are gunning for power. I hope this dashes that thinking. And this is why, Drew, it seems like you know, there's a few conservatives out there who have, you know, a lot of them I like, uh, who are kind of trying to propose this this idea that we would maybe make a deal with the Democrats and tell them, well, we don't pack the court. And then if we don't pack the court, then we won't put up a nominee. And I mean, I, you know, I like I, I like the sentiment. It feels good. I wish we had a country in which that was appropriate. I still push for a nominee, but I, I wish we had a country in which the Democrats could be trusted in such a situation. But quite clearly, we don't. Right. Yeah. I mean, so you're you're spot on. It's, it's one of those things where I, you know, you, you talk about the David French's, the Jonah Goldberg's who are just kind of waiting and hoping that the Dems will act in good faith. And particularly on something like the Supreme Court, I don't know where they've been for the last few years. Mm -hmm. I don't know if maybe they haven't been paying attention, but I don't know how any conservative, uh, you know, with, with any electricity going on between the ears could look at the Kavanaugh situation and say, yes, I trust these same people to now act in good faith. It, it's like a, it's a schoolyard thing, right? Like this is the sort of thing that you, you usually learn as a five, six, seven year old when you ask someone not to do something and give something up for it. And for some reason, that that message hasn't hit home for some of these folks. It hasn't hit home, though, I think, for a lot of Democrats, too, that are, you know, there's there's a difference between a Marxist, a progressive, a liberal and a Democrat. I've got a lot in common mm -hmm. with Democrats. 
some things in common with uh, liberals, but they're important things on, you know, we both agree with the Bill of Rights. Once you get into progressive and Marxist, it's a different story. But those are the people that are now in charge. And it it appears as though they just despise America and will destroy it if they have to and destroy it because they want to, at least the ones that they're listening to and empowering on the streets. Yeah. And I think part of it is, you know, they they feel entirely compelled to have some measure of power and control. And they're used to, they're familiar with having a Supreme Court and having a justice system that by and large is going to, is willing to legislate from the bench, is willing to carry victories and willing to carry water when Democrats lose elections or can't get legislation through or whatever it is. And I think what you're seeing right now, this kind of collective freak out on the streets is, oh no, what happens if we lose that? What happens if that sort of power and authority goes out the window? Uh, And you're right. I think there's a lot of people who are willing to truly burn down anything um, any any institution, any value, right? You're hearing talk about packing the Supreme Court, abolishing the Electoral College, doing away with the filibuster. It's anything that could be an impediment to that vision of what they think of as a better America can go out the window incredibly quickly uh, as as soon as they, they get threatened. There's a great story on the blaze today. Mike Bloomberg helps pay court fines for thirty one thousand one hundred Florida felons so they can vote. But they're all handpicked. They're they're Democrats that they're doing, and they're, they're uh, uh, Hispanic or blacks. They're not doing it for whites. How is Michael Bloomberg going to get away with this? Is he? You, you know, to be honest with you, I'm not confident he is. I think if there were another universe in which, and you know, I'm personally, I'm, I think I'm a, a pretty big fan of restoring voting rights to felons. Me too. They've served their time. But the idea of going through and selecting only the ones who you can confidently rely on to vote Dem, uh, one, yes, I mean, I'm sure there's an enormous number of legal challenges. I'm sure he'll get sued. I, I would be relatively surprised, I think, if he were to get away with it, one. And two, like, again, it just shows how obviously in bad faith what he's doing is because if what he was really concerned about was restoring the rights of felons, there's been a lot of great work in Florida done pushing on that issue. There's a lot of ways to do that rather than handpick throughout the voting rolls of people who you think are going to vote for your team. So, Drew, have you wargamed this out in your head? How does America come back together after this? Because we're seeing what the left is doing to the voting rolls and to, uh, you know, mail out ballots and, and things like this in Florida. We're seeing it. We know that they are going to be litigating everything. Um, they keep claiming that we're trying to throw the election and we're trying to cheat with, I guess, Russia again. I don't know what it is, um, but they won't believe a, a, a verdict of Trump is president. And I don't know, unless it's a blowout, I would believe that this was a fair election. How do we come together? Yeah, you know, I mean, my first thought, Glenn, is I think what we need to do is have a really rock solid Supreme Court with nine justices that we can count on. Whatever happens from the election, we're going to need to have a Supreme Court that is able to legislate the outcomes, right? We've got 50 separate state-based elections, all of which could end up at the Supreme Court. So I think we need to have an institution that people can trust and rely on that has probably as many justices as usually sit on it to be able to make that decision. One. Two, I think what you're going to need to see, uh, and on both sides, right? I don't think this is a uniquely Democrat problem, but what you're going to need to see is the more 
trusted, respected voices within the institution come back and say, okay, we have, we have, we have things, we have norms, we have institutions. You're going to need, if, if President Trump wins re-election, you're going to need Joe Biden and Barack Obama and Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer to get up and say, we are accepting the results of this election. You see maybe that? They have concerns. No. I, I mean, I think the problem is I don't. I could see it from maybe Biden, probably Obama. Um, but the idea of trusting someone like Nancy Pelosi or Hillary Clinton, who haven't accepted the results of the 2016 election, to come out and say, yes, I trust that this was fair when we have so many more variables at play. Um, I, I guess the short answer is, yes, I, I've war gamed it out. No, I don't have a good I don't have a good answer for how we can walk back from the, the abyss we're staring. All right. Thank you very much. Drew. I really appreciate it. Uh, God bless. Mine, sir. You bet. And you as well. Thank you. Thank you, Drew Holden uh, from The Resurgent. This is the best of the Glenn Beck program. And don't forget, rate us on iTunes. Long time no see. I know. It's been too long. I know. You're, I mean, you're trapped in California. You're going to slide off into the sea at some point. <laughs> Uh, I was just in Texas. Uh, pardon me? I was just in Texas, actually, doing that, you know, California thing of looking around and saying, maybe I should get out. <laughs> so, yeah, maybe. Maybe? <laughs> you, you haven't been convinced yet? What is it? No, we're, we're first, getting out. <laughs> first of all, you are getting out? Yeah. Uh, first yeah. of all, before we get into uh, your spectator, which is an awesome column, uh, what is it like right now in California? You know, it's uh, it seems like I was gone for two weeks and they, I came back and it seems like it's uh, settled down a little bit. But it feels it's just strange. You know, I, I went down to the Third Street Promenade to do some shopping and it's just a reminder of everything still boarded up. Lots of places are shut down. It was weird to be in Arizona and Texas where things are much more open uh, you can just go into restaurants and eat with masks. You know, everybody seemed to be respectful of wearing masks, but they also were still just going about their lives. And coming back here, it still feels very uh, closed up. And uh, people, it's more the interactions with people that are upsetting. I feel like everybody's become very suspicious of each other. And, you know, in the beginning of the pandemic, there was there was that kind of, solidarity we were all in this together and it quickly shifted to you know crossing the street hurriedly and making sure that you're you're it's just strange it's a strange not it doesn't feel hospitable and and the homelessness is really just uh, staggering that's really the thing that is the most noticeable it seems to just keep getting worse so are californians getting it I mean, are they starting to see, wow, wait, these guys, maybe not, maybe, maybe this isn't the best way to uh, run a government for a state. I don't know. You know, as I've become someone who pays more attention to these things, there does seem to be a strange lack of awareness between the people you're voting for and the policies that you're complaining about. I feel and I think with California in particular, you'll see people just leave California. And I always say to Californians, you know, in my little YouTube show on Dumpster Fire, I did a whole rant about this. I was <laughs> saying, don't take your crappy policies. Thank to you. These states 
where they don't have them because it's not, you know, that's it's a weird disconnect that I don't fully understand. So I'm curious to see what happens in these states where they've received the California refugees. <laughs> so you you write in your uh, you write in your column almost every Democrat who is voting for Trump has a personal story about being ostracized, shamed, or losing a close friend or family member over politics. I thought perhaps after Hillary's lost, uh, the left would learn that bullying people, tone policing and punishing people for wrong think only turns people off. How wrong I was. Mm-hmm. I was very wrong. I, it, you know, what's, what's evidence of me being very wrong is that I'm having a conversation with you about this and not <laughs> Jake Tapper. <laughs> you would think they would want to hear from me, um, being that I'm somebody who is of the left and still lives in a very liberal place where people feel like because I'm so publicly open about my own independent politics that they can confess their true feelings to me. So I hear things just even on the ground and from friends that they would never publicly admit to saying. And I feel like every single person who wrote me who's voting for Trump, who was a former Democrat, which was a surprising number, um, it leaned by the way, the emails probably, I have a thousand at this point, leaned much more heavily in favor of Trump. Obviously, that could be self-selecting based on my audience. I, anecdotal is, is what it is, but it still seemed like a big pattern of people who independents, independents, I feel like, vote for more policy. They seem to look, say, well, I can look aside from his character and I can look at what he's doing on paper. With the Democrats, it's, it was personal. Almost every single person writing me had a personal story of, I mean, people have gotten divorced over this, over the, the politics and the fights. And p- p- parents have had fallings out with their children. Their kids aren't talking to them. They're not seeing their grandkids. This is, these were, were upsetting things to read. This isn't happened, I don't think, since the Civil War, when... You know, the the split in the family would happen and it really divided the families. I mean, we've had arguments for a long time with family members, but we still got together. That's not happening. We're we're getting lots of lots of people telling us can't go see my grandkids anymore. Can't go see my son and daughter. Can't you know, I mean, it's nuts. Yeah, it's upsetting. And and I see it from the left to the right perspective as well. There there are a lot of. Uh, people whose parents have been kind of taken down uh, the very far right conspiracy theories that are extremely, you know, o- almost in the QAnon territory where they're a little bit unreachable. And then you see it on the left where the, where the, you know, Trump derangement syndrome or whatever you might want to call it. Um, on the right, I call it Trump devotion syndrome on the left, the Trump derangement syndrome is, mm-hmm is uh, very intense and they're, they're unreachable. So there's just people are truly losing themselves into the tribal instincts. And there isn't much to, you know, unless you're pretty self-aware doing work, there, there isn't much to stop that process, I think, once it starts happening. And in fact, our media and our society is very supportive of that divide. And everywhere you're here, you'll hear on the left all the time, you know, 
break up. You'll see tweets like this all the time. I, I, I stopped talking to my parents. I wrote them out. I mean, that I come from a big, huge Irish Catholic family where everybody was, there were lots of different opinions all across the political spectrum. Mm -hmm. There were 10 kids in my dad's family and we, it was drilled into us by my grandparents. Rest in peace. They were amazing. You do not fight over money or politics. Blood comes before all of that. You just, you love each other and have disagreements. And yes, people would get drunk and the cops would come sometimes. But that's a normal Irish Catholic family. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> we, we still all love each other and we would still make up and we still all have great relationships, even if our politics are, you know, I have, I have a, a very far, I have a extremely conservative uncle and I have aunts and uncles who were in the Portland protest protesting and we all still sit down and break bread and love each other. That, that is where I come from. And, I I hate seeing this when people talk about the fabric of society starting to shred. This is where I'm seeing it the most. Yeah. And it's just uh, upsetting. And I, I don't think people can understand what happens also when people feel rejected, that that feeling of rejection is um, radical. It can be radicalizing to people if they suddenly feel ostracized or shamed. You know, they're just little little stories about people at work being being outed or being it's very strange it's it's such a strange i i don't understand that instinct but it's strange for people to be doing that to one another as if that couldn't turn around and happen to them i i gotta tell you it is it is so bizarre um Stu, is there any doubt in your mind as conservative as this company is We've we've had progressives. We've had people work for if if we had somebody who was like a Joe Biden supporter. Is there any doubt in your mind that we would all be cool with that person? Yeah, I mean, there's there's, I don't understand this outing stuff and the shame and the that's awful. That's just an awful people. That's a group of awful people. Um, Let me go ahead. Go on. Oh, I just, I call it like micro cancellations. You know, these are, we talk a lot about cancel culture just in the discourse. And I think this, this evidence of micro cancellations that I'm viewing, which is these little ones that are happening all over America in friend groups and in families. I don't think we can underestimate that effect. The people I hear from who are generally Republican voting for Biden Almost across the board, it is a character, Trump's character, that they have the biggest issue with and um, some of the corruption and some of the people surrounding him, et cetera. With the, with the left voting for the right, almost every single person has it, two things. It's being kind of red-pilled by the mainstream media between COVID and riots and protests and now even with the saying that the left saying they're going to get rid of the filibuster and stack the courts and then personal experience of being quote unquote canceled. Hmm. All right. I'm going to continue with Bridges Fetacy here in just a second. I want to play an audio clip and, and ask you if you think people uh, that vote for Democrats actually believe this stuff or if they're just tolerating it. When he talks about like, Black Lives Matter. Ninety-three percent of the protests are peaceful. The vast, overwhelming majority <laughs> are peaceful. Great. 
And by the way, the 7% that are not, they have a very broad definition of what's not quote-unquote peaceful. For example, if you block traffic or something like that, or if you respond to police provocation. And even then, oh, oh. a big percentage of that, which we, that, that wasn't peaceful, is actually outside agitators, extremist right-wing agitators, oh. posing as protesters in order to oh. make the protests look bad. That's the first thing. Bridget. <laughs> I mean, we're hearing oh, that this. Just got me. We're we're hearing this all the time from the media that, that that it's a peaceful. No, the the protest when they started, they were peaceful. Now they're generally a bunch of white punks that are just destroying things mm-hmm. because they can. Um, mm-hmm. So they're not peaceful, and it's certainly not right wing uh, agents coming in. <laughs> are people do people believe that or you just look at it and roll your eyes? I don't I I I don't know. I I don't I think it depends on the individual really what what you believe. So I've been thinking a lot about this because because I'm hearing from so many people who were behind the idea. I think everybody was kind of on board of we need to really look at police brutality and then Right things everybody i wonder how didn't do we know what percentage of people actually protested you know how many how many people in america because that means a lot of other people were just observing this going down and still probably supporting but not necessarily oh yeah uh i don't know uh, do you know anybody when that when that first uh killing happened do you know anybody that said, no, police are always right. No, no, we, we were united. We were united. Yeah. And then somehow or another, it was used to divide us. Yeah, I, I mean, I just I I wonder, too, um, what the biggest problem I'm seeing. I do think probably if you look statistically at how many protests there were, even little ones, the majority of them probably were peaceful. And they probably mm-hmm. went off without a hitch for the most part. I, I think and, I think everything that happened during the day probably was peaceful. It was just right, right. Is, is that a good metric though? Like, I, so what if only seven percent were violent? Like, that's not acceptable. Like, if you were spent only seven percent of your days murdering someone, you'd still be thought of generally as a murderer. <laughs> I don't think people would be like, oh well, that one day he went and he helped at the soup kitchen. No one cares. <laughs> But I don't think necessarily the 7% are even voting. You know, this is something where I do, I do think that a lot of the people who are get are violent. And this is where I feel the left has done a very bad job. The democratic party in general is that they have not divorced themselves from this extremism. And in fact, you know, for all the talk about carrying water and all this stuff, I don't see them pushing back hard enough against that violence. And if they have started to it's only because they realize that it's polling that that they need to but for the most part they've they've accepted it and they've allowed it and i mean it's not on cnn encouraged it even if it's out of the side of their mouth even so so do you do, do you think the average person that doesn't pay attention to the news that they know that the democrats were like crazy on this uh, I, I think the problem is that the average person who doesn't pay attention to the news, what little they're getting, they can't separate 
the truth from fiction. They can't separate the well, no, they can't separate the seven percent from the ninety-three percent. So they are mm. going to look at the news and say, "Wow, the left is crazy." Even, even, it, I mean, oh. to be fair, they are. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I don't, I don't think the majority. I know lots of you know people who are kind of I would call Biden liberals in my family who are. I was laughing about this the other day because I was on the phone with a family member who's old school Biden liberal voting for Biden. And he was like, Bridget, I'm very worried about you uh, in in the aftermath of the election. If Trump wins, which I think he's going to, I think you need to get out of L.A. And I was like, so the party that you're voting for is going to burn my city down if they lose? Like, how do I reconcile this? <laughs> it's logic. What did he say? Did and- you say that to him? Yeah, of course. And he he was kind of laughing, but he was saying, you know, that same thing is that those aren't those people aren't voting. This is a pretty but he pays more attention to the news, I would say, than because these Antifa people aren't voting or whoever it is that's the agitate, the outside agitators. No, but you but you have the upper end of the Democrats actually supporting this stuff. Uh, And it's 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 really it's it's a frightening time. Da, da, da.